0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Thriving Doctors podcast. And today I'm delighted to be joined by Eliana Eliana Javed. Um, Welcome to the show. Really looking forward to our conversation today.
1: Yes. Good morning. Thank you for having me, Simon. I'm thrilled to be here.
0: Super. Um, So Eliana has been doing a little bit of thinking since our conversation, which was uh, probably a couple of months ago now, I think, almost two months Mm -hmm. ago. Seven, seven weeks, um, and um, what you thought you'd like to do was to, to to share some of the the biggest things that have been helpful for you. I think you said the sort of the things that you wish you'd known before, right? Um, and exactly on your on your journey uh, on your learning journey, your healing journey, and you, you also said that it, that that journey has been quite a long one, right? So there's, and you, you mentioned that was, um quite a lot of uh, different segments so what, why don't we just start by looking at what those segments are and then um, uh, then we'll dive into the, to the wisdom.
1: Sure my journey began in well my reunion journey began in 1992 and I started looking for my birth mother of course it's pre-internet so I was at the whim of my adoption agency they were very helpful though and it took two years to find my birth mother. And so during those two years, I spent as much time as I could researching adoption and reunion. Well, back in the 90s, the research meant going to the library. There were probably five books or so that I could find. Wow. And I read those. And that was kind of the beginning of that fog lifting. I mean, if, if you use those terms, that was the first time I realized, oh, wait a minute, there's something underneath here. That's really big and I don't understand it. I, In particular, uh, of course, Betty Jean Lifton was huge. Yeah. Um, but I read this one book that I think is out of print now. I can't find it anymore, but it was called Birth Mother. And it was a reunion story between a woman and her son. And he was, of course, an adult when they reunited. And he did hypnosis to go back to the time of his birth. So after I read that, I just thought, okay, I want to just sit in this and close my eyes and see if I can go back to that time. And I don't know if it was just the suggestion or what, but I saw the lights of the hospital. I felt the absolute destructive loneliness in my heart for the first time. And it shattered me open in a way that I had never felt in my life. And I thought, oh my God, what is this? I I didn't know what it was. I was so confused. So I just kind of shut that chapter and said, okay, I'm just going to keep going on my journey here. I didn't have anybody to kind of guide me to say, oh, this is a normal thing. This is adoption trauma, relinquishment trauma. I just thought, geez, there's something really odd underneath here. And I don't know what it is. So I put all that aside and then of course found my birth mother and I was at a place in my life where I was ready for a move and she had bought a country property with her mother in California, in Santa Cruz, and invited me to live with them. And at 24 years old, I thought that sounded like a fabulous idea. So I packed up my life, I moved in with my birth mother, my birth grandmother, in the mountains in Santa Cruz. I had no, no friends here, of course. It was new. I had no life here, no job here. All I had was them. And so I had the harsh reality of nowhere to go to escape and just be by myself and be in my comfortable place. I had no comfortable place. So it was a very it was a very exciting time, I mean, we had uh, amazing memories, a, a lot of fun times, but that darkness that I had felt during that time where I went back in time in my brain was about to explode open, and I had absolutely no clue that that was coming, and she had no clue, so it was a scary time also because there was no roadmaps about this back then. There was no real, we did go to a support group, but it was mostly adopted parents. There were a few adoptees in there, but nobody was saying like, yeah, this is normal. It's okay. You're going to get through this. You're going to be fine. I, I honestly thought I was going crazy and it was a, it was a tough few years. So you know, then, then life went on and, and, and things got better, but then some other difficult things have creeped up through the years. So when I get into what actually helped me, that's just kind of the launching pad of what happened.
0: Yeah. So it sounds like it was a very visceral experience, this. Oh
1: my God, you said the right word. I've been trying to think of what, what word to use. And that is exactly it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I tried hypnosis for not sleeping, Not not sleeping right after my best friend died, Hmm. two thousand. And uh, yeah, it brought up some stuff. It brought up some some stuff for for me actually. But it brought some stuff about my adopted my dad. You know my. And it it was it it was scary. I I think I've been working. I'd finished working. I wasn't working with him anymore. He's he'd retired, but. He he was quite a tough guy to work for, for not just me, you know. It was, a tough, um, but he was also, it, it, it was, it was, it was also totally inspirational. But you kind of like, you know, like he, he really, you didn't know which way he was going to go. But yeah, um, this hypnosis stuff bring brings out some, yeah, brings up some really big stuff. But the the most visceral experience I've had, um I've talked about this before on the podcast, was actually in a therapist chair when I when the therapist asked me why I had paused my reunion, why I hadn't gone gone further and 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 dug to to find out where I got so I'd got the lady's name, got my birth mother's name, but I hadn't gone any further than that. And she asked me that um she asked me why I'd paused the re, reunion or whatever. And um, the wow, the stuff that came up from that—I I, imagine—I'm getting goosebumps now, and this is like probably eight years ago this happened. And um, the 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 picture, a picture of her being outside the therapy room, popped into my head. Uh, well, then exploded into my head was probably better way anyway <laughs> unit. And 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 then I, I and I I flushed ice cold um, in terror of her rejecting me again, and then um, I, and then red hot and fury. I'm not going to let this fear beat me, hang over me, mar my life. And it was really uh, really visceral. And nobody told me. I only like three months ago, something told on you have to, that's what therapy is about. It's about breaking stuff. Mm. It's about breaking stuff open. It's about, uh, and, and I didn't know that, right? <laughs> so I thought it, it, it had a, it, it, I didn't think the therapy had done what it was supposed to do, but it done exactly what it's supposed to do. And um, the metaphor that's coming to, to my mind is um, that kind of, uh, have you ever seen um, an officer and a gentleman with Richard? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know, so the the story of basic training in any armed forces is that they take these young people, uh, they break them down, and they build them back up again, and and and, and that's what I think happens to us. It, 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 we have to we have to break down to to break free and open up and. I'm thinking like earthquakes and you know it it but it is it is it, it it's visceral it it's seismic um and I, I guess it it's it's going through the stuff to come out the other side really.
1: Yeah I love your words because they're so descriptive of what I was feeling.
0: Yeah. Uh, I, I think it's a shared I think it's a shared experience. And the and there's um there's a re, there's a relief in that normalcy, isn't there? That's you, you mentioned. You, you 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 mentioned that 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 there was uh a uh, there was no it. There's there's relief in the normalcy now, but at the time you were going through it, you didn't have a sense of normal, and I, I didn't have a sense of normal in that therapist chair. I didn't know what it was. Yeah. So
1: yeah, it's quite it. a quite a journey. And, and I'm happy to see there's so many adoptee communities now where people can reach out when they are going through this, especially this initial breaking open, because it can be so lonely and your friends don't understand it. And your parents, if you are able to talk to them about it, don't understand it. Other adoptees sometimes don't understand it if they haven't been down that road. So it's nice to see that there's support and and that's kind of what propelled me to want to come and talk on this podcast because, you know, if somebody's listening that's going through this and they hear some of these things that were helpful for me, even if they don't try those things, they'll feel like, wow, she understands, you know, where I am right now and just being understood and seen for what you're going through that is so misunderstood in our society is extremely helpful.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I I think one of the there's a double-edged sword to this validation, is not I think? Because sometimes it can keep us stuck in there.
1: Exactly. Yeah, there's a victim mentality that can come with any of this stuff, not just with adoption trauma. But there is this sense when you first discover it it's almost like you can't get enough of being in it. You just want to be in it and feel it and talk about it and roll it around for a while and in your brain because it's been pushed down for so long. So I think there is a, a fine line between really delving into it, really feeling understood, and then being able to move on. Yeah. That can be a, a piece that sometimes needs help to push us out yeah. of that place and move us on into the rest of our life, because it's not our whole life, even though sometimes it feels like it. And for short periods of time, it is our whole life when we're first discovering it.
0: Yeah. I was, um, w- I was working on some little uh, some posts for social media this, this morning. I, I came up with quite a, quite a few. Um, one, I didn't, one I kind of came up with and I thought maybe not, it needs more, some more context. It it just doesn't stand on its own uh, without context was um, before I was addicted to healing, uh, I I, I was uh, obsessed with trauma.
1: Mm, That's a good one.
0: You know, um, and we had uh, an an author called Emma Stevens on the, She's been on a couple of times. She has got a couple of books, and in her first book, she talks about being addicted to thoughts, and I just thought, that's it. You know, we're, we're addicted as, as a human species. We're kind of addicted. We're addicted to our thoughts, and we don't want to break free of them. And and she she was a an, an addict. To, she was alcoholic. Was Emma. Um, so she, you know, it 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 it's the same kind of stuff. You know, it is an addiction, an addiction to alcohol, an addiction. Uh, well, it's not the same thing, but it is it is that uh, addiction. And I thought, yeah, I was, I for a for a short period there, I was kind of like I was uh, I was wed to my trauma. Mm-hmm. And luckily, I, I had a coach and that person somehow I kind of turned around so for me it, I, I was going down best way I can think about it is a it, like I was going down a rabbit hole and mm-hmm. it was getting darker uh, but somehow I turned around 180 degrees and when I turned around I could still see the light at the other end of the tunnel but but what I see on some of the social media is people going, further and further down and when they turn around that they, they can't see if they turn around they, they can't see the light at the other light at the end of the tunnel and um, and that makes me sad for them and kind of it was glad for me it was just kind of like a, a stroke of luck that that i when i turned around i hadn't gone too far down there down there, down there.
1: right it is a slippery slope of how far into your trauma you can go for healing, and then when you need to come back and live your life again and get out of that stuck place.
0: Yeah,
1: that that is a very a very tricky thing to do, but very very important.
0: Yeah, um, the I used to have a, a bis- business coach back in the day. And she had a fantastic graphic to explain. Obviously, this is nothing to do with the doctrine, right? But um, uh, she had a fantastic gla- um, graphic to illustrate victim uh, mindhood uh, mindset. So it it had a a, a, a a horizontal line, and above that line, it had the words. Well, it it had a mnemonic. Or so they it was O for ownership, A for accountability, and R for responsibility. And then below the line, below this horizontal line that was on the graphic, it had bed, which was blame, excuses, and denial. And I that that must be like 15 years ago that I saw that graphic, but it's really stuck with me cause it's got that stark simplicity. Um, and the, the reason, I guess the reason I'm bringing it up in case that, well, you know, like we think of victim, victim, isn't a one or a zero thing. Is that, it? It, you know, it, the, the shades of the shades of gray, there's, it's a zero to a hundred thing. Um, but if those, if just in, I, I mentioning those and just in case those help the listeners with with this self-awareness piece because when I when the coach told me that she was pointing me to it because clearly uh I, I was below the line in some of the business stuff that was going on. But rather than making me wrong for that, she just pointed at the she had the little chart, she had a little um a flip chart, what well, not a flip chart, she had a, a little a a little poster of this on the wall. So that I could see it for myself.
1: Yeah, that's powerful. And I think all of us, no matter what healing we're doing, whether it's adoption or not, it's something to keep in mind that we are powerful and it is amazing to sit in the deepest parts of ourselves. But what's more amazing is to be able to then pull ourselves out of that and go out into the world with all the knowledge and wisdom that we've gained without all of the pitfalls that can come with being stuck in that. So, I was saying there were a few things that were really helpful for me in those early years. And um, I was suffering a little bit from uh, panic attacks and anxiety, which I'd never had before. But it started when I was living with my birth mother. Anytime she would leave to go anywhere, I would go into a panic mode. And I thought, what is this? So, you know, my wounding started. In a nonverbal state. And so it's it's no surprise that really the most healing I did was in a nonverbal way. So EMDR was pretty new back then. This was maybe 1994, somewhere around there. And so there was no known talk about adoption trauma, but she was working just with childhood issues, but it still had the same effect. It very quickly moved me out. I didn't have a longstanding anxiety disorder. It was pretty new. So it easily, not easily, but it it fairly quickly moved me out of the anxiety state and the panic state. And I never had a panic attack again after that, which was fabulous. And then she told me about a, a friend of hers that did body work. She had no name for what it was other than body work. And I would go once a week and it was this healing touch and sound And all of this um, piece of being able to accept a motherly, she was an older woman, healing touch, which is something I had not been able to accept from my adopted mother. Touch was very hard for me. And that was extremely healing for me doing that. And so that got me through those early years for many, many years uh, that kind of moved me into a place where I could then function, go out into the world, live my life until the next huge bump hit me. And the next huge one hit maybe 10 years ago. Uh, My birth mother who lived in the same town as me for the first time was moving away. She was moving out of the country part-time and then she would come back and live on our property part-time. And as an adult, I was totally fine with this. I was very happy for her, it was a good move. I had no issues with it, but that little piece inside of me just fell apart. And I couldn't stop crying. I cried for months, every day for months. And I thought, what is this? Why can't I get a hold of this? So I talked to a friend of mine who was a marriage and family counselor, just as a friend. I wasn't in a session with her. And she pointed me towards this modality of go back inside of yourself and see what age this voice is that's so sad. And when you come up with that, go and comfort that piece of yourself as you are today. And I didn't know that was internal family systems therapy. She didn't have a name for it. And my piece was the newborn. And I went back and comforted that newborn. And I did that several times. And then that was it. The crying ended. And I was able to come back into my adult self. And I've had to do that piece of healing that way many, many times since I learned it. It's been very healing for me. Yeah. In all different ages, that we're feeling different things, but mostly it's my newborn is the one that I go back to the most.
0: Yeah, interestingly, um, uh, I mentioned Amber Stevens earlier on. Uh, her her book is uh, describes that um, the, the in, in internal family systems stuff as well. It looks like it's just a memoir, but it, it it's really. Much more than that, and it gives a good explanation of of, of that IFS stuff.
1: Um, oh, that sounds fantastic! So, I'll have to check that out.
0: Yeah, um, so I'll, I'll put it. What I'll do is I'll put a link. Um, I'll put a link to to Emma's interview in the show notes to this, and then people can listen to Emma's stuff. And if they want to do, then they, then obviously from that they can link to the to the book.
1: Um, yeah, it's very helpful. And, and then I would say, you know, the last the time from that until forward, going forward, you know, I was still dealing with a lot of resentment towards my birth mother. I still, I harbored a lot of resentment. That was really hard for me to get over. I just could not, no matter how much therapy I did, how much work I did on myself, that was the one thing I could not cross for whatever reason. So I kept her kind of at arm's length, even when she was around me physically, I I kind of kept her away from me emotionally. And then in the end of 2021, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. And I decided before I even found out my treatment, I needed to delve into some healing. So as I was looking into healing, I ran across Louise Hay's book called Cancer. And it's a very small hour-long audio book and the first half hour talks about what she considers the root cause of cancer, <clears throat> which is long held resentment. So I went, oh boy, I got my work cut out for me here. And then the second half hour of the audiobook is a guided visualization about how to let go of that with your parents. And it was so powerful. I did it once and I changed. I mean, I've never seen such a change so quickly. You know, she had it down. She had healed herself from cancer without any treatments. So then I went through my treatments and I was all finished. Six months later, my birth mother was coming into town. I was so excited to try out my newfound loss of resentment around her. It's one thing to not feel resentment when somebody lives halfway across the country. It's another when they're standing in front of you. And that's what I would kept finding. I would work on it and then I'd be around her and it would resurface. So I was very excited to try this out, to see like, have I changed that much? Is it real? I picked her up from the airport. She wasn't feeling well. She ended up having to go to the hospital. She ended up having a rare form of pneumonia and ended up in organ failure in ICU. And they told me that she probably wouldn't survive. So here I was with my ability finally after almost 30 years to let my birth mother in, and now she's dying. And I just could not fathom that that was how it was going to end. So I, I spent six hours a day every day in ICU with her. And they said, you can touch her. You can talk to her. She can hear you even though she's in a medically induced coma. I would rub her feet because that was her favorite thing. I would put lotion on her legs. They were so dry. You know how that skin is in the hospital. I would touch every part of her that didn't have tubes in it, which weren't many. And I would read her books. I would read her the books. Her mother read her when she was young, that she read me when I first found her. And I would pour my heart into her. And then after two weeks, they took her off the medicine and she started breathing again and slowly started waking up again. And she spent a total of two months in the hospital, but she recovered and she came home to our home. And that two weeks in the ICU and that month and a half in the hospital of me being there for her, took us back to our original place. You know, We started in the hospital. Our relationship began in the hospital. I was the vulnerable one. She was the adult with the choices. Now the roles reversed. Here she is vulnerable in the hospital. I'm the adult with the choices and I'm making the choice to put my heart and my soul open into her and to touch her because that's what I, that's what babies do, right? They touch their moms and that's what I didn't get. So when she came home from the hospital, I said to her, I feel like what I've needed from you all these years, and I haven't been able to ask for it is touch, touch, I need to hug you. I need to touch you probably more than what you're comfortable with, but it's what's healing me. And she was okay with that. And so now when I see her, I mean my adult person, no, do I want to hug her that long? No. but that baby part of me is screaming for that. So I allow myself when I when it comes up and I say, I need to hug you and I hug her and it the normal amount of time passes and she tries to kind of okay, that's enough. And I say, I'm sorry, but I need more. And she says, okay. And so I stay there and I hug as long as my little ones want it for. And then I let go. And the resentment is completely gone. I'm completely on another page with that. And what I realized just recently is when I was thinking about this show, actually, I realized that my resentment was not all about her. It was not all focused on her. Most of it was focused on myself. I was not allowing myself to ask for what I needed. What I needed was physical connection. And I realized not everybody has that option with their birth mother, but they do with their loved ones. And I was keeping a part of myself separate. And that's what I needed. And I was angry at myself for doing that. And I had no idea. I mean, 30 years I've been at this and I am just now discovering this piece. And part of this opened up because of this podcast. I've been reflecting on what is it that has helped me thrive through this. And then as I started journaling and writing, this piece came out. And so I'm very grateful to have this opportunity to look inside of myself again and see this huge piece that has shaped the last many years of my life that now I have let go of. Wow. So thank you, Simon, for reaching out to me. It has healed me wow. in a way I did not anticipate.
0: You're very welcome. You're very welcome. And I'm sure the words that you're talking about will will help others. Um, a couple of things kind of pop up for me. I think the, the first one is going back a little bit and um, because you talked about pre-verbal trauma. Uh, and um, I, I was chatting to a therapist an and adopting a therapist. I can't, so I can't remember. I've had so many conversations recently. I can't remember who it was now. Um, but something hit me between. Um, sorry, I'm going to have to check it out because it's it's eating me. Uh, I, I, sorry, listeners, we're two shakes. Right? Yeah. Uh, Julie Lopez. So there's. Uh, we just did uh, episode 316 was breaking the trauma loop with Julie Lopez, um, who's a T and a therapist. And in our pre-interview conversation, something that she said to me hit me right between the eyes, which was the fact that um, our trauma is pre-verbal. I'm getting goosebumps listening, just recounting this one. Our our trauma is pre-verbal. And yet, most of us try and talk our way out of it with talk therapy or talk to ourselves, talk our way out of it. So how can we, uh, how how can talk work? Talk requires words. If it's pre-verbal, it's before words. And it's like, I I don't know. I I can't, I wish I could put it more precisely or concisely than that. Um, But the implications are huge.
1: Language. Yeah, it's exactly it's exactly what it is, is it's we don't have language when this trauma happens. And so healing it for at least in my experience, has happened when I am using modalities that don't require language. And you know, I was reading about what what happens when we hug another person. Okay, there's hormone releases, right, that make us feel good, oxytocin, serotonin all of that. But there's something deeper that happens that I don't even know if we understand yet medically science related. I don't know, but there is something that happens when we, when we hug somebody, you know, when you hug somebody and you say, wow, that was a really good hug. And then other people maybe give you that kind of sideways hug. That's not satisfying. There is something that happens. And, and for me, I, I had not gone down to the depth of opening that last little bit up To except to my own children and probably to my husband, but to my friends that I deeply love, I did not open up that part of myself. There was still a part of me that was holding back. I wasn't completely allowing myself to feel that love. And I think for me, that's where the last, well, not last, I'm sure there's many more healings I'm going to do, but that's where this piece of healing really needed to come from.
0: Um. I've historically not been very good very good with touch, actually.
1: It's not surprising a lot of adoptees feel that way.
0: Um, and I've never really given it much.
1: Well, more- I think we're all on a spectrum of, like, my children are all very different. They're all grown now. But my firstborn, is, his love language is touch. My lastborn, he doesn't like touch as much. And so I do think there is a natural piece that just we're wired that way. And some people just don't, don't accept touch the same way or it doesn't feel the same way to them. But I do feel like the adoptee wounding for me definitely centered around the lack of touch. I was not touched much. I was in, a, I was in the hospital for three and a half weeks. So it was just nurses. It was just medical touch. And I was starving for loving touch.
0: We've, we've, I've, uh, this has come up a number of times talking to some uh, international adoptees who have been in orphanages overseas, and also uh, in, um, at home as well. The other thing, the other thing that I find uh, fascinating with this resentment disappearance, if we call it the end of resentment, is. Normally, when I get anywhere near this resentment piece, I tell a story, a Wayne Dyer story. Do you, do you know a guy called Wayne? Dyer? I do know who he is. Yeah. Have you have, have you heard the story of him going to? Sorry, listeners, if you've heard this before, but it's it, it's an epic one, right? It, so he was um, he he did a sorry, it wasn't an adoptee. He there's four or five siblings. Anyway, the father American guy the. Um, his father left left them to fend for themselves, and he resented his father hugely. Growing up, and he took that into his adult uh, adulthood as well. And by a strange set of circumstances, he ended up at his father's grave, and he'd gone there to to pee on the grave, and he he ranted at his. At the graveside for two hours, and then he had a spontaneous forgiving, a spontaneous end of mm. resentment. And he credits that with setting him free, right? <laughs> so that's one sort of that that it sometimes happens like that in a big kaboom, whereas your process, your resentment process is. Uh, is 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 uh, incremental, step by step. I think you know, and and, and it's, it's it's taking its time, and and I think that that sort of change is probably more normal in inverted commas than the big Wayne Dyer explosive moment kind of stuff. And we it, it, so if we're if we're waiting as, as you're as you were talking about it, I was thinking. Well, I Simon always tells this story, the Wayne Dyer story about this explosive um, uh, end to resentment, spontaneous forgiveness. I haven't had that yet. Well, it, it, it may be that's because what is more normal is the incremental um, disappearance of this resentment. Um, and the other thing that I was talking, I was thinking about as you were talking about. Um, Louise Hay. Is she still alive, Louise Hay? She
1: is not. But But, you know, I I often talk to, I mean, I know this sounds weird, but I often talk to Louise Hay, wherever she is in the universe. And I thank her for changing my life because she's still, even through her death, her words live on and they're so powerful. And if anybody has not heard of Louise Hay, you know, she's one of the pioneers of the mind-body connection from the nineties, mostly. Uh, and the early 2000s, but yeah. she's really she really changed a lot for a lot of people, including me.
0: Yeah, um, I mean, she. I, I've heard her talking. I've heard her being interviewed and stuff. So she she found she was the founder of Hay House, Hay House Publishing, which kind of is in this space, and and it it it, it lives on, um, to deliver her stuff. And she's she's kind of a, a bit similar to um, what's the the lady that does the work um uh, uh name's finally gone but she's she, she was a hugely impressive and beautiful person uh, was, mm-hmm. was Hay house the the other thing that popped into my head on the back of the cancer thing was have you ever read Anita Mojani's dying to be me? I have not okay so um it's a great book. It's a great book and it's a, it's a big, he, it, she was mentored by, um, by Wayne Dyer. Like met Wayne Dyer got her to open up and, and, and got her the book deal, I think, and this sort of stuff. So she had cancer um, and she had a kind of big bang um, instantaneous healing from cancer. Wow. And the book "Dying to Be Me" um, describes it, and it's it's a beautiful book, especially on on audio, because she
1: that's she, fantastic she narrates
0: it, and um, yeah, uh, it's it's a it, it it it's a great one, but it, it kind of summarizes. Well, it's a it, it um yeah it it not summarizes it's a it's quite a long book, but um it, it kind of epitomizes what you're talking about. It, it, it validates exactly that kind of a, a, a approach and and the approach of Louise Hay as well. So uh, Anita Morjani, dying to me Be me is a is a great is a great book I, I loved it and I bought a second one and and it does some something doesn't quite have the same I don't know. but uh, the, the first book dying to be me is is, is beautiful. Um,
1: yeah, I will definitely look that up.
0: I'll put a I'll put a link in the in the notes because I know that people are listening to the podcast while they're driving or walking the dog like I do. Um, and then you think, what was that book that Simon talks about? It's uh, it's it's an epic book. As I say, flesh you're on audio. Um so how do you see that you 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 talked about Louise Hay being the the mind body connection How do you see how do you see that connection for us adoptees?
1: Oh yeah, that's that's a big question. So for me, what it turned out to be is that I was not connected to all of my pieces, all my parts. I thought I was, I thought I was listening to all parts of myself. I was not. There were parts of myself that were screaming that I needed more uh, physical touch, deep loving physical touch in my life on a regular basis. And I wasn't connected to that. So that mind body connection, sometimes it's tricky because if you're trying to do it with words and you're dealing with pre-trauma or pre-verbal trauma, you have to listen to the things that aren't the words. And that can be a little bit more challenging. And for me, I wasn't aware. I didn't have the awareness that that piece was really big for me. And that was holding me hostage because I wasn't getting what my primal needs were. I wasn't meeting them. I wasn't listening. How do you listen to something that's not words? Well, that's that's challenging. But it's if you're quiet, you sit quietly. <clears throat> Maybe even do some journaling and you just sit, it comes to you. It doesn't always come in words. Sometimes it's in pictures, in visions. You just sit and let yourself be with yourself in a way that doesn't always have to center around words or intelligence. It can be more, well, intelligence in the way of words, but it can be the intelligence in the way of other means in our body. I just think as adoptees, a lot of us have problems with not being touched early in life. There's a lot of studies that talk about what happens in those first few hours and days after birth. You know, now they're saying, make sure your baby is skin to skin against you because that helps the baby develop their neurological system in the right order. And we didn't have that. I'm sure most of us did not have that, especially our age adoptees in the age of closed adoptions you know mothers were told not to touch or even sometimes look at their baby and so we missed something in the very beginning of our building blocks of our neurology and so now what do you do about that you know how do you fix that and and it's been a long journey for me but i feel like finally listening to the nonverbal parts of myself i've been able to connect the dots better I'm not trying to understand it in a language-based way. I'm trying to understand it in a, what you said, visceral. That's a great word. I'm trying to understand it in a more visceral way and connect to my baby self that has no language, that only has um, thoughts that, that, that don't surround themselves in words. So it is a confusing thing. But if you sit quietly, I do believe that that we all can connect to that part of ourself where the original wounding did happen. Yeah.
0: So before, when we came on, you were asking how our puppy's doing. And um, a, a, a little thing that my wife said came, came to mind. Um, so we've got an older dog who is about, about the same height as, as um, Indy's mum. And uh, it, Indy wants to, uh, yeah, Indy wants to play and Rosie doesn't want to play, right? Uh, and um, my uh, my wife said, oh, maybe, a bef- bef- while she this was happening, um, she said, maybe Indy thinks that Rosie's uh, her mum. And I'm like, what? I, I didn't say anything. But I'm like, what? There's no way. There's no way that that this that, that Indy is gonna think, gonna think that Rosie's her mom. Absolutely. Yeah, we
1: know firsthand that a replacement mom that we know the difference.
0: Yeah. And and um you, have you heard what what they do with have you heard what they do with sheep on this thing? Mm-mm. So, um we we, we watched this show called the Yorkshire vet. So it's a bit, it's a bit cheesy, but um, I, I, I stopped watching it because it's the same story every week, pretty much. But um, so if, uh, if I, uh, there's a lot of sheep are raised in, in rural North Yorkshire. And uh, if a mother has three um, lambs, she can only, she can't look after all three of them because she hasn't got the, the, the milk power or the teats. Right. So, what they do is that they will um uh, they will give the sheep give give the lamb to uh, another another sheep and also what they'll do is if a if a if the lamb dies yeah if one of the lamb dies they will take this the, the skin off the the dead lamb and and they will wrap a, another lamb from uh, from a, 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 um, a litter of three lambs, and give that to the um, to the to the mum and the and the mum because of the smell, because it smells like her her lamb will usually not every time but will usually accept it. Did, did I explain that correctly? Because it it seemed. You did. Okay, right. You did. Um, but as you were talking about the um, the touch and uh, three and a half weeks in the hospital, and I was thinking about my stuff, and I was thinking about my not being great at touch historically, I was thinking, what did to to what extent did I want to hug my mum, you know, my adoptive mum, and I have no clue. I have no clue about that. Have you got a clue about?
1: About how I felt with touch with my adopted mom or how much
0: touch I got. Um, Both of those things. Yeah.
1: I know that I cried the whole first year of my life. I have been told that. And the only time I would not be upset was when my dad, my adopted dad would put me on his belly when he was watching TV. He put us belly to belly and so, maybe it's no accident that I was way closer to my adopted father than my adopted mother. But of course, having adopted, having mother wounding, I mean, it's not surprising. It was hard for me to accept my adopted mother. Um, I didn't like touch from my adopted mother at all. I, I recoiled from it. And it was very hard for me. I didn't want to touch her. I didn't want to be hugged by her. I didn't want to sit on her lap. I didn't want to do all the things that my kids did with me that was natural. I didn't want any of that. And so I didn't get a lot of touch in my young life because I I couldn't handle it. It made me feel very, um, what's the word? I don't know what the word is, but I just felt out of sorts with too, with a lot of touch from my parents. Like my kids used to come and sleep in the bed with me. I can't even imagine ever doing that with my adopted parents. I, it just makes me sick to even think about it.
0: Wow so i I don't remember you you can remember it i i, I can't remember I, either way you said the word recoil i mean that's a really strong word it's a, it's a strong it's a strong word as visceral you know Recoil, it's a big it's a big word I can't remember one way or the other I've just got an inkling that I, that it wasn't and I, I haven't got a just I mean i've I haven't got an inkling of how strong it was. Um, or not. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm,
1: I feel, <clears throat> I really feel for adopted mothers on this point because I know my adopted mother wanted nothing more than to hold me and be close to me and have me want to be close to her. And I know that was a real source of pain for her, but there was nothing I could do to change it in the, the relationship that we had, because there was no discussion about, my wounding and where that Um, came from and why I was the way I was. It was just all glossed over into we picked you, you're special, you're lucky, we love you. And I'm sitting here just all like a bundle of neurons that can't handle touch and can't get really close. So it it was just a bizarre kind of thing, putting a salve on a wound that never penetrated deep enough in there.
0: I I remember recalling, recoiling, um, as an adult from touch, but not from my, not from the the people. Um, But, uh, you know, like you said that there was no discussion, but discussion wouldn't have helped anyway, would it? Because of the.
1: I think holding space, if maybe. maybe I wouldn't have been able to completely understand or go there, but if they would have held space for me, if they would have ever said to me, I understand that this, this must be something that's confusing for you Uh, and that there's a space somewhere inside of you where you're missing your other mom. And just even leaving it at that, you know, just to hold space that I'm different because I always felt so different and I never knew why I felt so different. Like, why do I, why do I feel so comfortable being around marginalized communities? I didn't understand that I myself was in a marginalized community and I never understood that draw to be around people that were in marginalized communities, that that's where I felt more, most comfortable and most understood. So I just think adoptees in this world, we're, we're just not seen for anything except lucky and grateful. And it's so fantastic. And yet there's this huge loss. And so it doesn't make sense to us completely. Like, wait, wait a minute, if I'm so lucky and special, why do I feel this way? Why do I feel so other?
0: Yeah. It is that an area that you you're still working on, or is that an area that's kind of behind you now?
1: No, I don't feel that way anymore. Um honestly, I don't know what adoptee issues are still lingering, other than I still am dealing with a lot of fears. I have a lot of fears in my life, and I do believe that is from my adoption trauma. So just getting out into the world and doing the things I want to do, like I want to start backpacking more and hiking more and being out in the world in more of a physical way and overcoming those fears is really hard for me. So I know I still have that piece, and I still have pieces of feeling alone in a crowd, which I know a lot of people struggle with that. you know, I have some very, very close, deep friends, but I do go through periods of time where I have put myself into a very lonely place. And all I have to do is reach out, right? I have these support people near me that would love to be there for me. And I still sometimes struggle with putting myself in that lonely spot yeah. because that's where I started. And sometimes I'm not aware that I'm doing that to myself. So then I have to say, oh, okay, why am I feeling this way? Well, because I've isolated myself and I'm putting myself in a lonely position again. And it's, I wouldn't say it's comfortable, but it's, um, I'm, I'm, com- I'm used to it, you know, that feeling. And so when I start to feel that, I say, okay, it's time to reach out again. You need to be around your friends more. You need to reach out into the world more. And so that does still exist for me. And I think that will be a lifelong journey for me. I think that's something I, I always will have to work on. Is to keep myself connected to the greater world.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've just been a question's been burbling away, so I'll just ask. I'll just go ahead and ask it. If if it's um if you don't feel it's appropriate, then just don't answer it. You know, I, don't know that. I'll be, I won't take it personally. Um, one it was something that prompted. It was prompted by something you said a couple of minutes ago. Um, I see some um, uh, well-known adoptees. Let's, let's just call them that. Uh, some some well-known adoptees putting out a lot of trauma stuff. Right. So, and and I'm trying to think, and I'm and I'm thinking, well what have they are they just doing that because that's what their audience wants to hear um, or are they still stuck because i i want to work with i want to learn from i want to talk to people who are ahead of me on the journey right i don't want to talk to people who are behind me I want to talk to people who, if I'm, you know, if I'm going to pay a coach, for example, right? I want to, I, I want, I, I want to work with somebody who I admire, aspire to. And there's a lot of stuff put out by uh, adoptees. I wouldn't want to work with them because I would see, I don't, I don't see that they're thriving. that they're, they're, they're putting out. Still negative stuff. So are they putting out negative stuff because they know that that's what the, um, that's what the people want or, uh, or are they putting it out because they're still there? Does, Does that make any sense?
1: Yeah, it does. And, and for me, at least, I mean, all I can do is answer for myself, but I feel like the times in my life where I have been in those places where there's a lot of, um, discussion about the trauma that I've gone through and the adoptee community and all of the kind of darker deeper messier emotions I do feel like sometimes when you're when you're processing it you're just deep 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 in it and you're swirling around in it and talking about it over and over and over and over again and and some and it's necessary for a certain amount of time in order to sit in it. And I guess we're all different in how long that time is needed for. How long do we need to sit in this? But there comes a point where it's time to then move out of it. And that's the fear I'm talking about. You know, that fear of moving out into the greater world. You know, sometimes it's easier to stay stuck in these dark places because we know it. it. may not be comfortable, but we're used to it. And then there's that fear of the unknown of, okay, let's now become a whole person and move out into the world and go out into the woods and sleep under the stars. You know All these things that I've started doing that I absolutely love, but I have to push myself because I have fear. And so I think people get stuck in these places because they're scared of what's next. I know what this is because I'm stuck in it, but I don't know what's out there beyond this. Yeah. And I think all of us can get stuck in fear. And so we have to have something. Mine was maybe my cancer, I don't know. But sometimes you have to have something that motivates you to move beyond. Yeah. And you're willing to face the fear because you need to get out of where you are now because it's not a healthy place anymore. It was healthy for a while and now it's over and you need to take those things that you've learned and now grow into the next version of yourself because it will make you stronger. But it's not an easy straight line. And that's why I I feel like it is really nice to have these communities where people have moved beyond. But there are many adoptee communities I have been on online that are just stuck, stuck, stuck in the same old thing. And and, and there's not a lot of discussion about healing. And so I think sometimes there's the trauma bonding, you know, where everybody just feels like, wow, this is so cool. People understand me and that's valid. And we need to be in those places when we're deep in the work, but then there needs to be a time where we move out and we become more a part of the world instead of just this tiny little community of trauma.
0: I think we're kind of back full circle to where we started with the kind of the breakdown to break through stuff, isn't it?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um,
0: and and I I think you know my view on this is probably pretty much just about that trauma moment, the 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 the, 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 the moment in the therapist's chair, the, the 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 slightly macho kind of I'm I'm scared as hell. And I'm and then I'm very angry about being scared and I'm not and I'm not prepared to to live it on so I'm prob I think I'm probably centering 99.9 percent of my my uh take on this particular topic on that moment um, so maybe I need to be a little bit more uh whatever holistic with that stuff so um is, is there anything else that you'd like to say that I've not?
1: Um, I think we've pretty much covered so much. I, I'm i just grateful to have these places to come to that I don't feel like what I went through was something that was an anomaly, that what I went through was normal. For many, many years, I felt like I was the only person in the world that went through this, and it wasn't until fairly recently that I got connected into these spaces and realized how valid my emotions and feelings are. And, and it's wonderful people like you that are doing these, these podcasts and, and people that are writing these books. I, I feel like it's doing a great service to those coming up now that are dealing with these emotions, that they're not alone. And there are, Millions of other people out there in the world that have experienced this and they've gotten through it and they're living a good life and it is possible.
0: Brilliant. Thank you. And thank you, listeners. We will speak to you very soon. Thank you. Goodbye.